This past summer, I had the opportunity to go back to a little third world village in the Andes Mountains of Peru, where I lived alone as a missionary. It was a very emotional experience for me, to say the least, because for two whole years, Cordova was my home, and the Cordovans were my family. I celebrated birthdays and holidays with them. I went out and worked in the fields with them. I went to their festivals with them. I mourned at their funerals with them. Most of all, I shared the gospel with them and taught them the word of God. I gave it everything I had for two years to see a church planted in that village. And so it was a very emotional experience to be back there for the first time in eight years. I had a full range of emotions. I was happy to see old friends again. I was sad to hear about those who had died. But one of the strongest feelings I came away from that mission trip with was one of disappointment. I was a bit disappointed by how many of the Cordovans still have not believed the gospel. But as much as I was disappointed in them, I was far more disappointed in myself. I was disappointed to realize just how little I have prayed for them over the last eight years. I was disappointed by how quickly those Cordovans who were so near and dear to my heart over time became, as we say, out of sight, out of mind. And yes, some of that is to be expected when you move away and get married and start a family and moved to two different continents, but it was still a bit sad and disappointing. Maybe you haven't experienced it to that level, but to one degree or another, we've all experienced that old adage, out of sight, out of mind. That's the way we sum up the common experience we all have of how quickly we forget about people or things which are no longer visible or present. You know what I mean. It's like that pair of shoes you shoved in the back of your closet and forgot you even had until you went back there digging for something else. Or it's like that old friend from high school who you ran into recently and barely even recognized because you haven't thought about them in years. Or it's that homework assignment that you completely forgot about until your teacher reminded the class that it's due tomorrow. In some way or another, we've all experienced what it means that someone or something is out of sight, out of mind. But what is common in our day was just as common 2,000 years ago when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians. And that's why as we begin the second chapter of this letter, we see that Paul is at great pains to make sure that the Colossians know that just because they're out of his sight— They are not out of his mind. Paul is nowhere near the town of Colossae at this point. He's writing this letter to them from prison, probably from Rome on the complete opposite side of the Roman Empire. But he wants the Colossians and all those in their area to know that they are still very much near and dear to his heart. In this part of the letter, Paul is describing his ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles that is, to all the non-Jewish peoples. Last week, we saw that the goal of his ministry is to present everyone mature in Christ. That is, the goal of his ministry is to make spiritually healthy and strong disciples 
of Jesus. And he's working hard toward that end. We saw that in chapter one, verse 29, where he says, for this I toil, for this I labor, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is going all out for the sake of the Gentiles to know Jesus and to be faithful disciples of Jesus. Now, at the start of chapter two, he wants to make sure the Colossian Christians, who would have been mostly Gentiles, know that they are also included in his struggle. The reason they might not immediately think that Paul is laboring or struggling greatly for their sake is because they've never even met him. Notice the first verse of chapter two. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul didn't plant the small town Colossian church or the big city nearby church in Laodicea. It seems most likely that Epaphras, one of Paul's missionary teammates, was the one who first shared the gospel in that region and planted these churches. So lest they think that the apostle Paul doesn't care about them, that he's not fighting for their spiritual growth too, he makes that clear in in these verses. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, or it could say for y'all's sake. Just because Paul doesn't personally know them and he's not physically present doesn't mean the Christians there are out of sight, out of mind. So they're included in Paul's struggle too. But how? Paul said at the end of chapter one that one of the ways he labors to present everyone mature in Christ is by preaching Christ and by warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. But Paul's in prison a long way away. How can he do that for the Colossians? Well, he can write this letter, which is full of wise preaching and teaching about Jesus. But I think there's more going on than just that with his struggle for their sake. What he primarily primarily means here by his struggling, that he is struggling, or could say that he is wrestling, is that he is wrestling for them in prayer. Because what we'll see in the next couple of verses are the same exact sorts of prayer requests we saw that he was praying for them back in the middle of chapter one. And the same word Paul uses here for struggle, he uses again in chapter four, verse 12, where he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature, and fully assured in all the will of God. So the main way Paul from the other side of the empire is struggling greatly for their sake and for the sake of their maturity in Christ is by wrestling in prayer for them. Paul wants them to know how much he cares about them and their spiritual growth. He wants them to know he's giving it everything he's got in prayer for them. And in verse two, he tells them his specific prayer requests. Verse two, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. There are really two main prayer requests we see in this verse. And the first one is for encouragement. 
Paul is praying that their hearts may be encouraged and at the same time be knit together in love. Being knit together is an interesting choice of words to translate a single word in the original language that could have just as easily been translated join together or unite together. Maybe you've got a version that puts it that way. But I think the words knit together were chosen intentionally in this translation because it brings to mind other places in the Bible that use that same kind of language. Places like Psalm 139.13, which says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Or Job 10.11, you clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. Paul is praying that in the same sort of intimate way that God carefully put together our bodies, that he would join together the believers in the Colossian church as the body of Christ. We know that's the kind of image he's thinking of because in chapter one of Colossians, verse 18, he talks about Jesus as the head of the body, the church. And he uses the same word translated knit together again, 17 verses later when he writes, holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together, there's the words, through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So, When you read those words knit together, don't think of someone like my wife taking a ball of yarn and two big knitting needles and turning it into a beautiful sweater because knitting didn't exist back then. Instead, think of how God carefully joins together our body parts with joints and muscles and ligaments. Paul is wrestling in prayer for the individuals in these churches to be encouraged and united to Christ and to one another in a loving environment, just like the parts of a body are united together. That's the first request he's praying for them for the sake of their maturity in Christ. But why is he telling them this? One reason I think Paul is telling them that he's wrestling in prayer for their hearts to be encouraged is so that their hearts will be encouraged. Doesn't it encourage you whenever you know that someone is praying for you and for your concerns? I know it does for me. And it encourages me me even more when someone prays with me for my concerns. And so let's all be honest for a moment and confess our sins that we do not pray for one another as we ought to. How many times on a Sunday morning have you said to someone, I'll be praying for you, And then as soon as you walk out that door to head to lunch at Nuevo, that prayer request and that person are completely out of sight, out of mind, and you forget all about praying for them. And if not on a Sunday morning, we've all done it some other time throughout the week when we've said we'll be praying for someone. It's okay to admit it. I've done it. You've done it. We've all done it. So here's my suggestion. Instead of saying, I'll pray for you, why don't we all start getting into the habit of saying, let me pray for you right now. Think of how encouraged and knit together in love we would all feel with our church family if when someone asked for prayer, we stopped and immediately prayed for their request right then and there. Some of you already do a really good job of this. It could be a 30-second prayer, but 
going with that brother or sister in Christ to the throne of God for, the, for their sake and for the sake of their concern in that moment could make all the difference in the world. So the next time you get that text message asking for prayer, don't just text back saying you'll pray, go ahead and start praying. And if you absolutely don't have the time in that moment, then put a reminder on your phone or write it down somewhere so that that person's prayer request doesn't get forgotten about like last week's leftovers in the back of the fridge. And set a reminder to follow up with them, to encourage them, to find out how that prayer request is going and how they're doing. I know that's something that's really encouraging to me, and that's how I know somebody's really praying for me is when the next time I see them or a week later or a month later, they ask me how that prayer concern is going. Praying with one another and for one another is such a practical way we can encourage one another and be united together in love. And you don't have to wait until somebody asks you. Go ahead and start praying this prayer right here for your church family and the one back in the middle of chapter one. You can't go wrong by praying the same sorts of prayers the apostle Paul prayed for the church. But there's more to Paul's prayer than what we've just seen so far. He's greatly wrestling in prayer for encouragement for their hearts and for knowledge for their minds. Look at me at verses two and three. That their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love and, it could say, probably should say, or also to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Notice the language here. Assurance, understanding, wisdom, knowledge. These are all words geared toward the mind. Like a chest filled with treasure, Paul wants their minds to be filled with Christ. Because it is in Christ where all the riches of full assurance and understanding are found. Because it is in Christ where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. Paul has already explained what he means by God's mystery at the end of chapter one. He doesn't mean some sort of unsolved riddle that's difficult or impossible to understand. By God's mystery, he means God's plan of salvation, which was revealed progressively over time and has now been fully revealed in Jesus Christ. That through faith in Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, all people, Jew and Gentile, may be saved. The gospel, and more specifically, Jesus himself, is where all the riches, all the treasures of assurance, understanding, wisdom, and knowledge are found. And you don't need to know Greek to know that that word all there really means all, all with no exceptions. And that is good news for you and me. And here's why. All the wisdom and knowledge you need to live a happy and satisfied life are found in Jesus. All the answers to all your problems, all the answers to all your questions are all found in Jesus. You might be here today with a lot of questions or even doubts, and maybe you're not even sure if you really believe this Christianity stuff. Or you might be a Christian struggling with anxiety and looking all over the internet for answers. Or you might be a parent 
just wondering how on earth you can stop your kids from acting like little demons in public. Or you might be here today suffering and wondering why this is happening to you. And if there's even any reason to keep trying. The answer to every single one of those situations and the answer to all the other situations of everyone else across this room are all found in Jesus. Jesus is the answer you are looking for. You won't find the answer you're looking for on the internet or in a philosophy class or a self-help book or a podcast or a life coach on social media or some kind of prescription. You might get some help from some of those things, but you will not find the permanent solution. You will not find the final answer outside of Christ because Jesus is the answer. I wonder, does that sound too simplistic to you? Maybe even a bit naive? If that's not good enough for you in your situation, if you think there must be more to it than that, then you are exactly the kind of person Paul is writing to in this letter to the Colossians. Because that was the exact same way the Colossians were thinking. They had heard about Jesus and how he's all we need, but all around them and their surrounding culture, they kept hearing about how there's more to it than that. That Jesus is great and all, but he's not quite enough. They were hearing things like, what you really need to be spiritually satisfied is to try worshiping Jesus plus angels. Or what you really need to be happy is to try Jesus plus eating this specific diet. And the Colossians were falling for it, just like we do today whenever we think Jesus isn't enough, that he can't possibly be all we need for happiness and satisfaction in this life, that surely we need something more to fix all of our problems. And if you're still not convinced, then let's think about this for a moment. Are you the sufferer? Then you need to fill your mind deeply with the suffering servant and really think about what it means that God himself suffered for your sake so that by faith in his son, one day he will wipe away every tear from your eye. Are you the frazzled parent then you need to fill your mind with Jesus, the only perfect son who alone can change our kids' hearts. And you need to pray to him for that. And every time your children disobey, bring their little hearts and minds back to the cross over and over and over again and show them the price of their sin and what it deserves and how by faith in Jesus they may be saved. Are you the anxious one? Then fill your mind with the Prince of Peace and ask him to show you where your heart's hope and trust have been misplaced. And by his grace, build your life on Christ the rock. Are you the skeptic? Then let me encourage you to talk to a mature Christian who will carefully and respectfully listen to all of your questions and doubts, and be able to show you the answer in the word of Christ. But 
Be willing to turn your skepticism back in on itself. Be prepared to doubt your doubts and question your questions. Because Jesus is not afraid of those who ask or seek or knock at the door of truth. In fact, he invites you to do so. But just know that if you are genuinely looking for the truth, you will only find it in the one who said he is the truth. You see, no matter the situation, no matter the circumstance, no matter the problem, no matter the question, the answer is always Jesus. In him, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are just waiting to be discovered. And if you need help finding those hidden treasures in Christ, if you need help getting your answers in Jesus, all you have to do is ask. James says to pray and ask God for wisdom, and he will generously give you all that you need. Because based on what we see here, the prayer for wisdom is really a prayer for more Jesus. Our heavenly father knows what we need and he knows that we need more Jesus. And he is delighted to answer our prayers and give us a deeper knowledge for Jesus, a deeper knowledge of Jesus and a deeper love for Jesus. Jesus is our greatest treasure and in him alone, we will find all the answers to all of our questions. Paul really wants to emphasize that in this letter. And he's praying for them to fill their minds with Jesus so that, verse four, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments or it could say with persuasive speech. Paul knows the arguments they were hearing sound reasonable. He knows that our sinful warped minds are easily deceived into believing that Jesus is not enough, that there must be more. To this day, we live in a culture that's still telling us that we need more than Jesus. All day long in our culture, we keep hearing how we, in order to live a happy, satisfied life, we need more. We need more money. We need more vacations. We need more rest. We need more work. We need more substances. We need more sex. We need more beauty. We need more power. We need more, more, more. That's why... Business marketers understand, they understand how our brains work. And that's why, have you noticed nowadays, we have all these plus plans. What they want you to think is that you're not getting the fullest Disney experience unless you have Disney plus. That you're not getting the fullest ESPN experience unless you have ESPN plus. That you're not getting the fullest life experience unless you have Jesus plus. But while the world keeps on like a broken record saying more, 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 the apostle Paul in every single one of his letters keeps on saying Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Because even though they may look similar, the symbol of our faith is not a plus, it's a cross. Because Jesus is it. He is all we need. He's the answer we're looking for. That's why Paul wrote this letter and why he's going all out in prayer for them, even though he's so far away. Paul ends this section by reminding them that they are not out of sight, out of mind. He goes so far as to say in verse four, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, 
Though he is physically absent from them, he feels spiritually present with them. So much so that he rejoices to see their spiritual progress, their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. Because they are united by faith in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit, Paul doesn't feel distant from them at all. Even though he's never met them face to face, even though he's physically far away, he wants them to know that they are still near and dear to his heart and that he's giving it everything he's got. He's going all out in prayer for their sake and for the sake of their spiritual maturity. What he's trying to say is that in Christ, he is with them. He's not just praying for them. He's praying with them. They are not alone. And neither are you. Because just like Paul was greatly struggling for the Colossians, even though he never met them face to face, you've never met Jesus face to face, but he is greatly struggling for you. Paul showed his love for the Colossians by how hard he prayed for them. And Jesus shows his love for you by how hard he's praying for you. You know, that's what he's doing, right? Paul says in Romans 8.34 that at this very moment, Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. The intercession of Christ is not something we talk about a lot. And there's a lot involved in that that we don't have time to get into this morning. But at the very least, you should know that what that means is that Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for us. He's asking the Father to do what he promised to do. We get an idea of the sorts of prayer requests that he's probably asking based on the way that he prayed for his, prayed for his disciples while he was on earth. He's praying for our firmness of faith. Like he prayed for Peter when he said, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He's praying for us to be knit together in love. Like he prayed before he was arrested that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So be encouraged. Jesus is praying for you. Even when you don't know what to pray or how to say it, Jesus is praying for you and he's praying with you. So go all out in prayer with Jesus for your sake and for the sake of others to be encouraged and for their minds to be filled with Jesus. He's praying alongside you because he loves you and he cares about you, even though you've never met him face to face and even though he is physically far away. Even though he is absent in the body from us, Jesus is still with us in spirit, in the spirit, the Holy Spirit. Spirit. He said he would never leave us or forsake us. He said he would be with us always, and he is. When you repent and believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are knit together in love with the God who is love. You are knit together by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus 
with Jesus and with the rest of his body, the church. The spirit of Christ lives within you and he is with you wherever you go. So be encouraged. You are never alone. And even more than the apostle Paul ever could have, Jesus rejoices over your spiritual maturity. Paul labored for the sake of our maturity in Christ, but Jesus died for the sake of our maturity in him. So be encouraged. Jesus rejoices to see you becoming more like him. Jesus rejoices as you seek to encourage your heart and fill your mind with him and encourage others' hearts and fill their minds with him. He looks on all of your spiritual progress with a smile on his face. So don't hold back. Go all out for Jesus. Because you see, no matter what happens, you will never be out of his sight or out of his heart and mind. When he was on the cross, dying for your sins, you were on his heart and mind. When he rose from the grave in victory three days later, you were on his heart and mind. And now that he's ascended to heaven and is at the right hand of the Father, you are in his sight right now, and right now you are on his heart and mind. He can never forget about you. He hasn't forgotten about you like some bad American missionary, and he never will. When you trust in Jesus and turn from your sin, you will see that Jesus will always be on your heart and mind too. So what are you waiting for? Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone as the final answer to all of your sin and guilt and shame. When you do that, you will see that even though his body is physically absent from you, he can never be out of sight, out of mind ever again. You'll see that his physical absence will only make your heart grow fonder for him and make your heart long more and more to be like him and to be with him until the day when you see him face to face and rejoice with him forever and ever.